Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Um, I know that Mother's Day has a lot of different emotion depending on the relationship you have with your mom, if your mom is still alive or not, and even some moms who have lost their children. Um, all these things have an effect on us and the emotion of holidays especially. Uh, and we are just aware of those things. And so... Um, We celebrate, but we celebrate with that in mind as well. But let's pray, and we'll get started here, at least live in this room. Father, as we are gathered here together, Lord, we do want to acknowledge and celebrate Mother's Day, and we do so, Lord, with the thankfulness for our moms and the blessings we have received And Lord, we also are grieving the loss that we've experienced, the loss that some moms have experienced, or or maybe even the struggles they are having because of where their children are if they're not in healthy places. And, And so this day comes with a variety of emotion, Lord, and we embrace this. And we ask that where we are at and the things that we are going through, Father, that we would encounter you in the midst of that and that we would learn how to navigate our lives in ways that are healthy for us as well as for our children, as well as for our parents. And we are grateful again that we can do this together in a community. Lord, bless our time. Lord, be with Gil as he's away um, on vacation, uh, be with uh, Rick as he's watching his grandbabies get dedicated, Lord, and be with us here as we gather in your name to acknowledge your work in our lives. We do pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Randy's going to lead us in a couple songs. couple of announcements. Uh, Tuesday night, we have the Art for Artists happening here at 7 o'clock. So if you guys have some work of art, it could be any kind of art. You could bake. If you are an artist with baking, like my daughter is with cookies, you could bake cookies and bring them here, and everyone would celebrate you. Um, <laughs> whatever you have, it's a time to share, collaborate, learn, and uh, be encouraged and encouraged. So that's happening Tuesday night at 7 o'clock Thursday We have uh, the Women's Book Club, the Year of Biblical Womanhood, going through that together. Here it's been really good, Um, so 
you're encouraged to come. Even if you're late, you can still come enjoy the time together with the ladies and that. And remember, we are here because of the donations that you give, and so we appreciate that as you continue to financially support Genesis and the ways that are there on the screen. Uh, we are grateful for that. Uh, Today I'm concluding our series on preach, or my series on preach, and I've wanted to kind of do this to ask myself, what is worth preaching? What, what is it about this message that I consider gospel, that I consider good news? As I've been leaning into this, there's a lot of changes that have happened in me and how I, I see the gospel and the gospel message, how it affects people and uh, the world around us. And, and so I started off with uh, one where we saw how God interacted with Cain. And it was good news to know that God cares about people, even in his condition, that God has a conversation with people in some of their darkest moments, that God is still there and present. And it's important to recognize these kinds of things. And Today, what I want to do is talk about power. I want to talk about what it is that power, what about power is good news. As last week, we kind of talked about the vulnerability. We talked about really the idea of grieving and the idea of God being in the midst of grief. This is kind of a flip of that coin because if we are empowered, what does that look like and what is good news about power. Back in, in junior high school, at least when I was in ninth grade, it was still middle school or junior high school. It was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And then they went and changed everything. I don't know what it is now. But anyway, when I was in ninth grade, there was a kid named Howard who was a bully. And Howard used to push people around, and Howard was a big kid. And it might be surprising t- to know, but back in Ninth grade, I wasn't as big as I am today. I wasn't of the stature that I am today. I was smaller still. But Howard was different sort. He he was like raised on a farm in Russia and used to like you know lift bay about you know the hay bales in the snow or something like that because he was just a beast of a guy. And, and Howard would just push me and other kids around and. and it was one of those things where it started to just affect me and as he just used his power to kind of thwart me. And it's so how we see power being used today where those who are strong will assert it over those who don't have, right? And we start to see that this is something that is preeminent throughout our history. We see it in societies. We see it in countries. We see it in families. We see it in organizations. We see it in churches, right, where those who have power make the rules and decide how things are going to go. But there is this thread throughout Scripture that is interesting to, to see, that oftentimes the firstborn is seldom, for a lack of a better word, the one who is blessed, where that was contrary to the culture, where it was always the firstborn who would inherit, right? The firstborn, well, Cain killed his brother Abel. We see, you know, uh, Jacob usurping himself 
over his older brother Esau and getting the blessing, the, the birthright, the family inheritance, right? We, we see uh, Jacob or Joseph sold into slavery by his older brothers, but then becoming someone who's prominent and who is now, you know, a slave in Egypt, but then comes to the second only under Pharaoh in Egypt. And this constant underdog scenario shows up time and time again. And it's not just, you know, the nation of Israel who was then enslaved by the mighty nation of Egypt, but even as Israel starts to develop and gain power, we see this idea of power addressed and how Israel uses their power, right? It's as the nation grew in status and power, and their need to survive grew, they also had kings. And we know that Saul was the first king, and after Saul came David, and after David, his son Solomon. And between David and Solomon, this was the height of their power. This is when Israel was the strongest. This is when they were united. The northern and the southern kingdoms were together. And we started to see this flourishing. And we have really the dominant kings of David and Solomon, and neither of them have the best record or reputation. They are men with flaws like all men, but even in their victories, oh sure, one's this giant slayer, and the other is supposedly the wisest man who ever lived, but as you look into their stories, there are these things that stand out that the writers intentionally, I believe, put in the stories. And so we're gonna start in 2 Samuel chapter 24. A story about King David when he is kind of at the height of his reign. In verse eight, it says, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king in Israel were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David put out a decree. He wanted to know how many fighting men he had in his control. And this is the answer. After nine months and 20 days, they had all these men. And notice in verse 10, David was conscience-stricken after he counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. You're thinking, what's so foolish? What, what's so foolish about counting you know, how many men you have in your army, knowing what your power capabilities are? And the whole idea here is that now they have become this nation and now they are trusting their strength in how many people they have to fight. Verse 11, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. This is where, let's make a deal, God, it's an origin. No, it's not, but anyway. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. 
Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So many questions, all right? Now, there is another account of this in Chronicles that's a little bit different where we're not given the choices, but we still have the idea that David wanted to know how strong he was, and he was putting this trust in in chariots. He was putting this trust in horses. He was putting his weight on how many men he had who could fight, and that seems to be what is the opposition here. It seems that God is saying, you are trusting in these things, and that is not what makes you strong. What's so bad about counting? God will bless those who bless Israel. Haven't we heard that? Not always. Sometimes he'll kill 70,000 people if they're not doing well. And why didn't he just kill David, right? He's the one who made the mistake. Why kill 70,000 people? I guess it's good to be king. But we see here this power, and, and there's a lot of ideas of what this is about this plague, if it is something that is just attributed to God because it is this time of sickness or a pandemic that the people went through, but they are seeing this as the fact that they were trusting in their strength and how strong they were, and now they're being humbled. And it seems that there is an important relationship between God and those who hold power throughout this storyline in scripture. Remember back in Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, it says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. There is this idea of remembering when you were weak, remembering when you were in a place of vulnerability. Think about that when you are over other people. Continues in Leviticus chapter 19, Verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner resides among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. That sounds familiar. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so we see this ideology of you are supposed to have compassion on those who are weak because you were once weak and remember what it was like to be in their shoes. And here comes David With his chest out, you can see, and with all these swords, he goes, look how strong we are now. Let's move to Solomon, the second greatest king. We know that Solomon was said to be the wisest man in the world. It might be good to ask according to who and in what extent, right? We just throw out these labels as if it's, yeah, of all time. It's like, well, maybe it was to certain people in a certain time. We're so quick to want heroes, and to negate the other things that we see that help us understand things maybe more clearly. 
the writer in the book of Kings, they have a knack for not only giving information, but for throwing in jabs. And they're doing it in ways that aren't just blatant, but they're just kind of under the surface. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 4, a list of names are given for those who are appointed as Solomon's officials. These are the people who are overseeing the affairs of the nation, which seems legit, especially as the nation is growing in power. But in verse 6 of chapter 4, it tells us that Adonorian, the son of Abdi, was in charge of the forced labor. The what? Forced labor. What's another word for forced labor? Slavery. See, the word forced labor is the same word used in Exodus when the children of Israel were enslaved by Egypt. They were forced labor. What was this forced labor for? One of the things it was for was to build the temple. What? We've got slaves building the temple of God? Don't you remember what we just read about the the foreigner, the the stranger to treat them as a native born, but now we are making them slaves? And they're building the temple of God? Now, You can go kind of one of two ways with this information. You can say, well, you know, it was pretty common at that time, and so it was just part of their workplace. Or you could say, well, it's actually something that is contrary to what God wanted, and what they are doing is actually in contradiction to what God is declaring, which is what I think is happening here. But hey, with the forced labor, they thrived. It says that peace reigned, except for the slaves, of course. For them, it didn't. Throughout Solomon's reign, everyone in Israel and Judah lived safe and sound. The nation thrived with an abundance of military power, money, food, livestock. It's like, woohoo, we're number one. Look at what we're doing. We are doing this. And everybody is thinking, wow, we're prosperous. We're doing good. But it's on the backs of these people. There's another jab that the writers make. In the same time, it took Solomon seven years to build the temple of God. And you think, wow, seven years, that's an incredible feat. Imagine the labor, imagine the planning, imagine that happening for seven years. But the very next work verse, it says it took 13 years to build his palace. You think that's an accident? The writer said, oh, it took seven years and it took 13 years to build his palace. Or do you think they're trying to present something in this, right? We later read that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, attacked the city of Gezer, which is, you never want to name your city Gezer, right? Because you just know it's asking for trouble, right? Hey, that's, let's go down to Gezer. And it says that they attacked the city of Gezer, burned all its inhabitants to death, then offered it as a wedding gift to his daughter when she married Solomon. You know, some people get blenders. Some people, you know, get, you know, wine glasses or toasters. Solomon got a city that the inhabitants were burned to death as a wedding gift. And who did the wedding gift come from? It came from the king of Egypt. Oh, yeah, Egypt. Do you remember Egypt? The one who enslaved us. Remember when we were in Egypt? 
You see, do you think that the people at this time living in that culture would see these things and put the dots together that we remember Egypt, it is a prominent part of our history. It's when we were enslaved, it's when they had power over us and look at us now, we are now getting gifts from the king of Egypt as they burn cities, slaughter people and give it to our king. You see, there's a new pharaoh in town, and his name is Solomon. He has slave labor, building up forces, conquering, getting gifts, and taking charge. When the queen of Sheba visits Solomon, she is so impressed with the accumulation of wealth and power. And the previous chapter that told us was built by the slaves, that she goes on to tell Solomon, I know why you have been given all of this wealth and power. It is to maintain justice and righteousness, she says. Now, the phrase justice and righteousness, it's the word misha and sadaka, I think, are interesting Hebrew words because essentially what she's saying, I know why you've been given all of this. You've been given all this to help those who are downtrodden, to give people opportunities to make things better. And be careful that you don't just spend all this on yourself because that'll turn bad really fast, and it does. You see, even in their own law in Deuteronomy, the king was not supposed to acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more for themselves or to acquire many wives and accumulate large amounts of silver. And Solomon broke about all of those commandments. And I know he's supposed to be one of the heroes in scripture, the wisest man who ever lived according to the writers and kings who also gave these jabs about him, who also wrote about his abuse of power, using slaves to build the temple, spending almost twice as much time to build his own palace, not to mention the 300 concubines, the 700 wives, one who was the Pharaoh's daughter. The wisest man in the world needs to have a little footnote next to that. And there's so many lessons to be learned here that we read just under the surface. Power that is built on the backs of the poor might produce peace and prosperity for a time and for a small group of people. But at what cost? And does God care? If God heard the cry when they were in Egypt, would he hear the cry of the slaves who were in Jerusalem? Or does that go out the window? He only cares about the care and cries of the people who are of a certain ethnicity? Didn't he say to treat them as native-born? Does God care about what's happening here? We enjoy lives that are detached, right, from what it actually costs to live like we do. We don't think about the costs of the clothes we wear most of the time, that we get to enjoy chocolate that is produced by children working in African cocoa farms, many of who've been abducted and forced to work there, forced labor. But we enjoy our chocolate. We enjoy our cheap clothing. We enjoy the things that make our life easier. And we don't 
lean into what power does to those who don't have it. We're number one. Want to keep ourselves first. And this is not just America. Every country does this. What are we supposed to do with the power, the wealth that we have? Could it be to maintain justice and righteousness? Or is it just to build our own palaces? And all this is from the Old Testament, right? This is all taken from the Hebrew scriptures. What about the New Testament? What does Jesus have to say about this? Oh, he has plenty to say. So turn to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 to 28. I just pulled out this one passage. There was a few that just lean into this. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand, the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, we know that they pushed mom to go do this. Okay, mom, go ask Jesus which one of us can be on his right hand. And remember, in their mind, they were thinking, this is going to be a kingdom that's going to reign in power. We're gonna overthrow Rome. We are gonna take place. I want to be the vice rabbi, whatever it is, right? I I want to be second in charge. And then you, my other brother can be, you know, head of, you know, the military or something. Whatever they're thinking, it's to be in a position of power. This is directly dealing with how they want to assert themselves. And they use their mom, happy Mother's Day, to go and do that. Because moms, they'll do this kind of stuff for their kids. Not all moms, but these, this, their mom did. And so, You don't know, verse 22, what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They were upset because they didn't think of it first. Right? They were just upset because how are you going to be over us? No way, buddy. You know, they, they, they are still fighting for this position in this idea kingdom driven by this power that we've seen and that we still see today. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Earlier in the chapter, verse 16, he said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Talking about a a parable he gave about a landowner. And so he's kind of giving this understanding of them of how power works in the kingdom. How we handle power shows who we really are. Absolute power reveals absolutely. And it did with David and it did with Solomon. And it does with us in what power we have. And you might think, okay, that's just how the world is. 
That's the way things are in the world. You can't take this literally and try to apply it into a, a place where we have to deal with society. Gandhi did and kicked out the British Empire from India by being peaceful and not by being violent, by protesting and hunger striking and marching. Martin Luther King brought about the civil rights movement, not with violence, not by overthrowing this, but by peacefully protesting. I I have these glimpses of when I was a child sitting in my grandfather's den that was decorated like a tiki room. I don't know why, but it was. And there was Avon perfume bottles all along the wall. And I can remember watching TV I probably was like six years old and and seeing protesters and seeing, you know, black people being mistreated with uh, fire hoses and just violently. And I remember at that time, just these glimpses, and it's so long ago, it's hard for me to, to be clear on if this was a memory at that time or if these are things I saw and remembered later. But I remember this pull within me saying, these are amazing people. And there was something about them that made me want to imitate them and the resolve that they had. It was standing out to me. What about Jesus himself and what he did? The whole book of Revelation is written to a people who are being oppressed by a government of power, who are seeing temples being built by their gods, who have money with their emperor's insignia on it, saying Caesar is Lord, and they're being told Jesus is Lord, but they're being persecuted, they're being killed, and this Rome seems to be flourishing. And so the prophet John says, I want to tell you how things are going to be. And it's all about the power of God showing up as a lamb who was slaughtered. And it all talks about Jesus coming back with his robe dipped in blood. And it's his blood. It's not their blood. And he's talking about them being victorious in the end. It didn't look like it to them at the time. But where's Rome today? It's a memory in history. Followers of Jesus are present and continuing. Back to the ninth grade and Howard, the beast. You may not know it, but I was voted in the yearbooks they used to have, you know, most likely to succeed and, you know, uh, best looking. I can't believe they had those things. But, you know, I don't think they do it anymore because that'd just be awful. Um, I wasn't most likely to succeed. I wasn't best looking either. Um, But I was voted the most popular in the ninth grade in my school. They really should have said the most confused because that was me, right? Because in the ninth grade, I was pretty heavy into drugs. And so I hung out with the stoners and would use drugs with a lot of my friends back at that time. But I still was into sports. So I played ball and hung out with the jocks and, and, and 
you know, had that room. I was also involved with the drama team. And so I had my friends who were in drama. And so I had, you know, my hand in all these pieces. I also was involved with martial arts. I started doing Kung Fu. I'd get stoned and go see Bruce Lee movies with my friends. And and so then I had these Vietnamese friends. And even though the Vietnamese friends weren't into Kung Fu, 14-year-old Stone Sam didn't know any better, right? He's just, oh, these guys, hey, do you guys watch Bruce Lee? You know, you're Vietnamese, you know, you know Kung Fu. They didn't know. I helped them in English. God helped them. Um, I just had my hands in all these different places. And so they saw me with all these different people. And whoever was part of that yearbook thing said, Sam's popular. Look at, he's with these guys, he's with these guys, he's with these guys. And one day, out of my homeroom class, because Howard was in my homeroom class, Howard said something like, hey, jerk, whatever he said, and he pushed me. And when Howard pushes you, it's not just a shove. I went flying, right? I was on the ground, books or whatever I had in my hand was on the ground, and I was there humiliated. And the only power I had was my friends. And I remember standing up, Howard, saying, Howard, this is why no one likes you. No one wants to be your friend. It's because you're mean. And then, you know, <laughs> like, don't hurt me. And Howard said, I'm sorry. And Howard became my friend that day. He started treating me differently. And I was shocked. I was like, Wow. I was actually able to communicate to Howard because really what Howard wanted was friends. But he didn't know how to communicate and so he used his power to push and try to make things happen. And the power that I had was my friends and when I used the power to encourage Howard, he changed and stopped treating people mean and actually became my friend. You see, when... Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I don't think he meant you need to get out of line and go to the back. I think he meant that wherever you are and whatever power you have, you are to help others go before you. So if you're at the front of the line, then you say, hey, go ahead. You use what authority you have, just like Jesus did, to help serve others and put them in a better place. Because you're not putting yourself less, you're raising others up. I had no idea what I was doing back then, but I didn't realize that I was not rebuking Howard or making, because that's what I meant to do. I I was mad at him. He just embarrassed me. He just knocked me down. But what I had actually done is helped him to come up to a level so that he could interact with people in a way that was better. And I think that's the purpose of power. It's not to assert itself over others, but it is to lift others to where we are and help them raise up. You know this when you have children. You want your kids to do better. You want your kids to do better than you. That's why you work and do all the things you can for them. That's why you do their homework and make those silly state projects for them, right? 
anyone else do that or just me, right? I mean, come on. I've seen those projects. I know that kid didn't make that. The kid can't even tie his shoes. You're telling me he made that thing happen? You do these things because you want them to do well, because you love them, because you care. And this is the idea of power that I find worth spreading. And I find that it is effective. I find that it works. The thing is, we don't really believe in it. Because we, like the early church, see Rome as so strong, so powerful. We see these governments. What are we going to do about China? What are we going to do about Putin? And they're saying, what are we going to do about the U.S.? And we're all sitting here posturing these ways of how are we going to assert ourselves? How are we going to maintain this power? And then there comes this idea of Jesus that says, you know what? How can I make them better? How can I serve and lift people up? Because that's what power looks like, according to what we see throughout Scripture. And and it's sporadic, but very focused in Jesus. And maybe we need to step back and allow this to be something that preaches to us, and we can use it to then preach to others. Let's pray. Father, I am very guilty of not seeing things in this light often, where I forget about empowering others and think about how to better myself. And it's not that that is wrong in itself, God, but there is something beautiful about taking what we have and helping others who don't have. There's something damaging to us that disregards those who are without and don't consider them but only consider our comfort. Lord, I pray we would wrestle with these things and find out how we are to navigate where we live and the things that we encounter and the things that we have power over. Lord, may we think through these things and allow them to shape our actions in some way fine-tune them. And I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May we be empowered by God to serve and to follow in the steps of Jesus to show the world what power can do. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.